Has anybody here done extensive research into ancient medical practices? <laughs> no? Okay, perfect. <laughs> As in, like, over 500 years ago? Okay. And then, Aaron, you're not allowed to answer. Because <laughs> you're going to, you know, be at an advantage here. We're going to play true-false. I don't know if that's really a game. You're going to say... If you think this is true or false, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an ailment, for example, rabies. I'm going to give you an ancient treatment, and you're going to tell me if you think that treatment really was prescribed for this ailment at some point in some place in history, or if you think I made it up. Okay? So for rabies in ancient Rome, people believed that you could treat it by cutting open the wound where you got bit by a rabid animal and then covering it with raw veal. And then the patient should go on a diet of lime and pig fat and then drink a mixture of wine boiled with badger dung. Okay? If you think this is true, raise your hand. Okay, if you think this is false, raise your hand. Okay, this one is actually true. Pliny the Elder, who was a naturalist and author, recommended this treatment for rabies. Uh, specifically if he got bit by a rabid dog. Um, they've been dealing with those for a long time, it seems. <laughs> okay, uh, option or ailment, rather, number two, is a sore throat. So ancient, Egyptian, ancient Egyptians believed that you could treat a sore throat by boiling a frog in water and then mixing that water with honey and reeds and then drinking that solution until your symptoms went away. Do you think this is true? Do you think this is false? Raise your hand. This one is false. Yeah, I made that up. I was hoping the hot honey water made like, oh yeah, that could maybe make a little sense. I was hoping to trick you there. Okay. Uh, treatment for a headache. So the ancient Mesopotamians who suffer from headaches were told to uh, start a, a fire and then kind of let it smolder down to get embers, right? And then place a combination of cow dung, garlic, and a cutting of your own hair onto the fire and then create smoke from that. And then you're supposed to inhale the smoke while you put a wet cloth on your back or neck. Do you guys think this is true? <laughs> Who thinks it's false? Okay, I made that one up too. I was hoping to include enough details to make it sound believable. I don't know, the garlic, just something about the garlic made it sound right. All right, a treatment for epilepsy. The, the book of Physic, uh, not physics, but phys physic, probably is how it's pronounced, uh, suggests that in order to treat epilepsy, you should cook a strong man's hair, someone who is very fit, take some of his hair and cook it with a deer leg bone, cook that and then turn it into a powder, and then you should eat that powder leading up to a full moon to treat your epilepsy. epilepsy. Who thinks this is true? Who thinks this is false? This one's true. It's actually true. That's what people thought somewhere in the world at some point. Okay. Treating swollen eyes. I'm not exactly sure if this is like from a fight, if you just like didn't get enough sleep. I don't know what kind of swollen eyes they're talking about, but here we go. So in the 10th century, uh, you were supposed to cut the <coughs> eyes out of a living crab, and then you can throw the crab back in the water. And then you're supposed to smear the crab eyes on the neck of the person who has swollen eyes. 
And that was supposed to <coughs> help. If you think this is true, raise your hand. Crab eyes. Crab eyes, yeah. If you think this is false, raise your hand. No, this one's true. <laughs> this seems crazy, but it's true. <laughs> okay. Treating wounds or, or open sores on the skin. So the Egyptians thought that you could use a combination of moldy bread and animal dung to dress wounds and heal skin sores. All right? And they particularly liked donkey, dog, gazelle, and fly dung. All right? I didn't, how do you collect enough dung from flies to make a wound-packing amount? I don't know, but that's what they liked. So, if you guys think this is true, raise your hand. If you guys think this is false, raise your hand. Tom, you've been wrong like three in a row. This is true. <laughs> okay. Last cure for an upset stomach. So an ancient French medical book. Um, so that you can treat stomach aches by boiling a head of broccoli and placing the warm broccoli on your stomach and letting the person sit there with it. And the idea was that this warm broccoli would kind of suck whatever was hurting your stomach out of you. All right. So if you think this is true, raise your hand. If you think this is false, raise your hand. Finally, Tom, good job. Yeah, this one's false. Yeah, I made that up. I was thinking, what's the French, French vegetable? Broccoli. Broccoli. It actually was. Kind of like when the French brought it over here to the U.S. It was like the 1800s. Everybody's like, oh, broccoli. Super cool. This French <laughs> vegetable. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't know. The lobster and crab connected. Speaking of crab and French cuisine, kind of a random uh, fact here. People in New York sued New York, um, the prisoners, because they fed them lobster in jail. And they were like, oh, this is just like the leftover stuff from your catch. Like, it's improper treatment. Can't feed us lobster. Of course, if you don't have butter, then lobster, what is really lobster? Everybody just wants butter. That's really what you eat lobster for anyway. Okay. Back on topic here. I hope that some of these ones that I made up sound just as ridiculous as the real ones. That was my goal. It's hard to distinguish what was real in these situations and what was not. And for as long as people have been sick, they have been looking for ways to heal themselves, and they've come up with some pretty crazy ideas, obviously. And I think the reason we've come up with crazy ideas is because there is hope that comes from knowing that maybe you can get better, right? So I'd rather try to do something about what is wrong with me than just have something be wrong with me and not do anything about it, right? That makes sense. Or at least maybe feel like your symptoms could be lightened up a little bit. Or maybe you could even get a cure. Well, I think we've all been in this place, right, where we've been sick or someone we love has been pretty sick. And we feel helpless to help them. And there's only even so much that modern medicine can offer us. You know, it, it's not 100% guaranteed. It is a practice. It's not a, as much of a science as we would like to think it is. It's, it's not perfect. And so we've been in these situations where we've been sick or someone we've loved has been sick. And we, we didn't have any hope that they were going to get better. We felt helpless. And the reason I'm bringing all of this up today is because we're in a series called The Names of God. 
And the one we're looking at is Yahweh Rapha, which means the God who heals, which is a pretty interesting name. And we're going to see how this promise and his characteristics, this characteristic of God, can give us hope. So let's go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 15. And while you're turning there, I'm going to uh, kind of give you the backstory that leads into this chapter. And we're going to be looking at the first time that Yahweh Rapha is used in Scripture. So Exodus 15 takes place after the Exodus from Egypt. So Moses comes, well, Moses is called by God to set the Israelites free. He goes into Egypt and he says, hey, Pharaoh, set these people free. And Pharaoh's like, nah, I don't think so. I don't like that idea. So Pharaoh resists. God then strikes Egypt with ten plagues. After each plague, Moses goes, he's like, okay, are you ready yet? Like, we can, we can leave, and all of this will come to an end. And Pharaoh's like, no, no. And then he does it ten times, or nine times. Eventually, the tenth time, uh, Pharaoh concedes, and he lets the Israelites leave. And so the Israelites are on their way. Not only that, he's like, please take gold and cattle and all this livestock and just leave us alone and get out of here. But he changes his mind at the last minute. So the Israelites then find themselves between a wet and a hard place. So on one side of them is the Red Sea, and on the other side of them is the army of Pharaoh, the Egyptian army. And these aren't soldiers. They don't have chariots. They don't have armor and swords. They're just people trying to leave. And so... God steps in as they're approaching the Red Sea, and he parts the waters of the Red Sea for them. And he creates a pathway across the dry ground of the lake bed, while at the same time creates this kind of wall of fire that keeps the Egyptian army at bay. So imagine like Egyptian army, wall of fire, Israelites, and then a path through the sea. It's just kind of this amazing thing to think about. So the Israelites pass over this dry ground through the Red Sea, And as they are leaving, God takes away the wall of fire. And the the, the Egyptian army rushes in after the Israelites. And as they're in the midst of the Red Sea, God brings the water crashing in on them and wipes them out in one move while also giving Israelites the safe passage. So it's this absolutely amazing experience, right? And this this is kind of a a foundational moment for the, the faith of the Jewish people for thousands of years to come. And right after this is where we get to Exodus 15. Right, literally right after they make it to the other side. Let's go ahead and start reading a little bit here in verse 1. Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, to Yahweh, that's what all capital Lords means. For he is highly exalted, the horse and its rider he has buried into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will extol him. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his armies he has cast into the sea, and the choices of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep covers them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Yahweh, is majestic in power. Your right hand, Yahweh, shatters the enemies. I was just thinking of our first Sunday, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. And I was just thinking about that here where God is this 
warrior who is fighting on behalf of his people. But this goes on for 18 verses, this, this praise and worship. And at the end of these praise and worship, Miriam, who is Moses and Aaron's sister, starts a new song. And she gets a tambourine out and they start dancing and the party keeps going. I mean, it's this like, amazing, impromptu act of worship on behalf of the entire Israelite people to God. It's just kind of this amazing moment. And then the story takes a turn for the worst. For the worst. Look at verse 22. Then Moses led the Israelites from the Red Sea. So they're there and they started walking into the wilderness where God was going to show them to the promised land. And they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. So on the tail of this great worship experience, an amazing thing that God did, the people find themselves in dire need of water. Ironic that God just saved them by water and now they're, they're uh, dying of thirst. So on this third day, they finally find some water. So they're walking through the desert and they're, they're like, oh, we need water. And they find like off in the distance, they see some water and they get there and they realize that it isn't even drinkable. It's bitter. We're not exactly sure what that means. It could be salt water. It could just be tainted with something. And you can imagine that if you're on the verge of dehydration and you're walking through the desert, you're like, oh, yes, finally, we found an oasis. And then you get there and you're like, oh, I can't even drink this water. I'm going to die out here. You can see how that maybe got the people all twisted up. But keep in mind, this is only three days after God led them through the Red Sea on dry ground and wiped out the Egyptian army. And here they are complaining. And I think this acutely speaks to our lives and just people in general. If the people who had just experienced walking through the Red Sea three days later are getting mad at God and doubting him, I think we are susceptible to that as well. So just keep that in mind. You know, we, we aren't always as trusting and faithful as we think we are. Or maybe we're not as far away from doubt as we think we are. And I'm sure we've all been in that metaphorical desert in our lives, right? Where we've been walking and we feel like we have no water. And what do the Israelites do? So instead of praying to God and trusting him, like they probably should have, they complain to Moses, which starts a troubling trend for the Israelites in the desert, all right, over and over and over again. They, are, they complain to Moses. They get upset at God. They're like, why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? Why did you bring us out here to starve to death? Where is the nice, comfy place we used to have in Egypt? Can we just go back, please? And it goes on and on and on. So this is not the last time this is going to happen. Look at verse 23 with me. So after they complained, they, they came to Merah, where they found the bitter water, and therefore they named it Merah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And they cried out to the Lord, and excuse me, and he, meaning Moses, cried out to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the water, into the waters, and the waters became sweet. So he sees this branch, and God says, throw this in the water, and you'll be okay. And again, God performs a miracle of water for the Israelites. 
and they are now drinking fresh water. And it's at this time, which is just kind of interesting here, that God decides to give the Israelites a message. And I don't think it's any coincidence that God decides now to do it. Look at verse 25 with me. Then he cried out, or excuse me, then he cried out to the Lord, he threw it in the waters. Look at verse, uh, the last part of 25. And then he made for them a statute and regulation. And there he tested them. And God said, if you will give earnest heed to the voice of Yahweh your Lord, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I put on the Egyptians. For I, Yahweh, am your healer. All right, so that's Yahweh Rapha for the first time in Scripture. And then from there, he leads them to a limb where they have 12 springs and there's palm trees and they camp there and everybody was happy. But as we think about Yahweh Rapha, I think it's interesting to know that Rapha can mean heal or repair, right? But it can also mean to make fresh or to purify. And I don't think it's any coincidence that God uses this word Rapha to describe himself right after he miraculously purifies the water to save his people. He heals the water. He makes it fresh for them. What I think God is saying is not only can I purify this water and turn it from bitter to sweet, to sweet, but I can also heal you. I can restore you. I can purify you. I can turn you into my people if you listen to me and follow me. And as we're thinking about the message of hope today on Advent season, that the hope that Jesus brought into the world, I can't help but connect God the healer to this promise of hope that we have through Jesus. You see that God sent Jesus to purify us from our sins. He sent Jesus to die for us, to save us. And you see how this is all connected here a little bit. The character of God revealed all the way back in Exodus is the same character we see at play in the New Testament when God instructs his son to save the world. And it's the same character that gives us the hope for our future. So let's take this one step even further. God promises an ultimate healing, a final restoration of all things, where there is no longer even the possibility of getting sick. Nothing else will be corrupted. And Peter gives a really impactful sermon in Acts chapter 3. And he gives, I think, the perfect words that combine all these ideas that we're talking about this morning. I have it here on the screen for you. Acts 3, 19 through 21. Peter says of the people, Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven may receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. And we saw this last week too, where with Abraham and Isaac, where God has been doing things for a really long time to prove who he is. So that when Jesus comes on the scene and the church gets started, there is a foundation laid that proves God's character. 
And what Peter is saying here in Acts chapter 3 is that God has always been a restorer. He's always been a healer. He's always been a purifier. And the ultimate fulfillment of his character in this way is when he's going to send his son back to the earth, not just to purify some water in the desert, but to restore all things. And it's not going to be just for a moment until we get thirsty or hurt again. It is going to be for eternity. I'm not sure about you, but I would take that hope over a strong man's hair and a cooked deer leg any day of the week. (laughs) Here are a few things I think we should take away from this message. Number one, don't let the desert steal your trust. By this I mean don't let the difficulties of life overshadow the proof that God has given us. God has proven himself, not just in the Bible, but in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. We don't want to let a difficult situation distract from the reality that God is here with us. Even in the desert, even when we're thirsty, in Acts, or excuse me, Exodus 15, I think we see a really good example of that. If the people who just walked through the sea on, the diagra- on dry ground through the Red Sea can lose track of God's trust, I think we are susceptible to that as well. So don't let the desert steal your trust. Number two, rely on God. I think sometimes, maybe without even knowing about it or realizing it, we start to put our hope and our trust in other things besides God. We misplace it. I think it's natural for us to look for hope. It's it's natural for us to look for solutions to our problems and to try and figure out when in difficult situations, how do we get out of this? How do I make things better? But if you've got God on your side and you've got trust and faith in him, there is literally nothing else or no one else better equipped to come into your circumstances and change things. On top of that, God has already secured a future for us because he plans to restore everything. His name is Yahweh Rapha, the God who heals. And because our hope lies beyond anything that this world can corrupt, we remain strong through anything this world can throw at us, too. Even if everything we own, everything we love, everyone we love, and even if our own lives are taken from us, we know that there's a God who can restore it in the age to come. He can heal us, make us whole, if we are willing to listen to him and keep his commandments. So I think that's the charge that God put before the Israelites, and I think he's putting, us, putting it before us as well. So I hope we walk away today with hope. Hope that God has put a plan into place, a healing plan into motion, and it cannot be stopped. Jesus has already come. He's already died. He's already been risen from the grave. And God has made these promises, and they're in place. There's nothing in the world that can stop it from happening. So let's share this message of healing with others, and let's share the healer with others as well. Please pray with me. God, I thank you for being a God who heals, for getting us through difficult times, for sending your son to bring us hope. I just pray that 
your purification comes in our lives and your restoration and your care and your love protects us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.